Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett with Hickory Ridge Community Church. So thankful that you're joining the broadcast today. And it is the end of the week. I'm so glad that it is Friday. I love Fridays. And the reason I love Fridays is because it's one day closer to Sunday. And as I often say, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. I hope that you're ready for Sunday. And if you don't have a place to worship, why don't you consider coming to Hickory Ridge Community Church this weekend? We have a service at 9 o'clock, that's our drive-in church, and then we have a service at 11 o'clock, that's inside worship. If you're making plans for Christmas Eve, why don't you include worshiping God on Christmas Eve? What a way to celebrate Christmas, right? Come Christmas Eve, celebrate the birth of Christ, and we have an exciting Christmas Eve service planned for you, and I hope that you come and be part of that on December the 24th. At 3 o'clock is drive-in church, at 5 o'clock is our inside worship, Uh, During our three o'clock drive-in service, we are going to have coffee and cookies and cocoa and uh, you can grab that as you pull in and go ahead and park and just enjoy the service and bring your kids with you. And then the next service, the five o'clock Christmas Eve service will be inside our worship center and that'll be a candlelight service. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Can't wait to celebrate the birth of Christ. Hope that you celebrate with us on Christmas Eve. Well, today I wanna talk to you about three lies that we all encounter. At one time or another, you will face these three lies. And we're going to be looking at a book in the Bible that you probably haven't spent a whole lot of time studying in, and that is the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Uh, Zephaniah is one of the minor prophets. And I always say the minor prophets are not minor because their message is minor. They have a major message. They're called minor prophets because they tend to be shorter books, and they are power-packed books. And so I want to spend just a few minutes today talking to you about this wonderful book of Zephaniah and looking at three lies that we all will encounter. Well, let's look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And I would say that these two verses are the primary theme of the book of Zephaniah. The great day of the Lord is near. That little phrase, the day of the Lord, right, is found numerous times throughout the Bible And it always is talking about the day of judgment, right? The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and of ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds with blackness. Now, let's just back up for just a moment and kind of look at the the central theme of the book of Zephaniah. The name Zephaniah means Yahweh hides or God protects. As we look at this book, there's major judgments that are coming to the surrounding nations. In chapter number two, we see that the Philistines are going to be judged. Uh, We discover in chapter two also those who live along the Transjordan are going to be judged by God. We discover also in chapter number two that Ethiopia and Assyria are all going to face God's judgment. So chapter number one deals with the coming judgments that God is going to place on these nations found in chapter number two. We also learn, however, in chapter number three, that God is going to protect a certain group of people. There's going to be this godly remnant that's going to be protected, that God is going to one day restore. And so we learn about the nature of that remnant. We learn about the return of that remnant. And then we learn about the future of that remnant in chapter number three. 
But before we get to that chapter, we go back into chapter number two, and we discover that God has this call to repentance. And he gives them this appeal, and he lays it out for them that they're living a filthy a life of immorality. They're fickle. They're rebellious. They're greedy. And so because of that, the day of the Lord is going to fall. So God gives his appeal to them that they should be ready to receive this appeal. He talks about the nature of what it's going to look like. And then he talks about the future of the glory of Israel. Now, Zephaniah has hidden in its book some eternal protections. Zephaniah begins with his genealogy, and it goes back four generations, and he's kind of an unusual prophet. And in the list of the names of the genealogy, we see that Hezekiah is in that list. Now, Hezekiah is the same man that was alive during the time of Isaiah and of Micah, and there's a connection that would lead many to believe that Zephaniah, because he's a descendant of Hezekiah, is actually a royal prophet. So he begins his work during the reign of Josiah, and Josiah was a good king. He was an ethical king. He was actually guided by priests and religious leaders, but things didn't remain well in the eyes of the Lord. The nation, after Josiah's death, goes back to the sin of idolatry. And that's why the central theme in the book of Zephaniah is the day of the Lord's judgment. So that phrase the day of the Lord, is found 19 times in the Old Testament, four times in the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament, as it deals with this message of the day of the Lord, is always having this this sense of expectation. And, And that's where Zephaniah is. He says, let's be silent before the Lord, before the Lord our God. Why do we need to be silent? Because the day of the Lord is near. Now, there's actually a double meaning to this phrase, the day of the Lord. On one hand, the day of the Lord is the day that is set aside that we listen to what God has to say to us through his word. The second meaning of that day of the Lord is the fact that judgment is about to happen and it's going to happen around us and we better be ready for it. So if we're well-versed in what the Bible has to say, you're probably reading this and having this understanding of this particular subject And you may be missing some of it, but it's kind of like if you understand the main thrust of this book, you understand the benefit of it. Now, I don't know if you like the old writings of the Puritans, and I'm kind of one of those weird people that I like to read the writings of the Puritans. Now, they don't mean a whole lot to you unless you understand Old English and you understand the context in which the Puritans were writing. And I kind of get that maybe some of the things we're going to talk about today will, will seem kind of foreign to you. Um, you, you know, I think about car manuals, for example. I just bought a new car, and it's got this really thick car manual. And I don't really enjoy reading car manuals. I start reading them, and I easily get confused with them. So I don't make a whole lot of repairs on my car myself or on my appliances or, or on buildings. I, I can do basic stuff, right? And basically what I do, if I need something done, I will hire somebody to do it. If I don't want to hire somebody to do it, I'll go find a YouTube video. And for example, not too long ago, the headlight burnt out of my car and I had no idea how to how to replace that thing. And I said, man, this looks really complicated. I'm like, how, how am I going to even fit my, my fat hand in behind there to replace the headlight? And so I picked up a YouTube video 
and, uh, and I discovered how I could easily replace my headlight. All I had to do is jack up the car, take up the front car tire, take off the front shielding in front of the headlight, and I could easily get to the headlight. Now, that sounds simple, right? Uh, it's really much more complicated than you would imagine. And I wonder, why in the world did it make it so difficult to change a stinking headlight on a car? I mean, you shouldn't have to jack up your car and take off the front tire and, and take off the sheathing uh, to get to the headlight. To me, that was ludicrous. But that's what was required. Now, if you know that, you can prepare yourself to go through that process. Zephaniah's audience didn't know the message. So what does he do? (laughs) Zephaniah became the first YouTube video. He lived out the message before them. They were not likely to read his message. They had to see it. They had to hear it because they didn't know what the message was going to mean. They wrongly understood who God was. They wrongly understood what he wanted him to do. They wrongly understood or misunderstood how much he really loved them. So Zephaniah is going to live out a very simple message to them. And the message is surrounding these three lies that the people were believing. We learn in verse number one, going back to Zephaniah, verse number one, that the day of the Lord was going to come. On that day, God was going to punish them. All those who avoided, all those who stepped over the threshold, who filled the temple with violence and deceit. Now, that statement right there might not mean a whole lot to you. Zephaniah is saying to his people, in essence, and he's living it out before them, you're stepping over the threshold, right? You're stepping into the room of the temple. You're walking into this temple, and you're going into this temple. You're filled with violence and deceit. Kind of like what Isaiah says, these people are are drawing near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, we're coming to church and we're singing praises to God. We step into the church and we're pretending that everything's okay, but really we're filled with deceit and with violence. So that word deceit, what were they being deceived about? Lie number one, that God is disconnected from me. They thought... They believed that God was far from them. Zephaniah 1.12 says, At that time, I will search Jerusalem, and I will punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Now, as you consider God, expect to find fallacies in your thinking about yourself and God. In other words, although you may think that you know all you need to know about God or all you want to know, you don't. If you resist such an offering to step across the threshold, you will probably become angry with God, in which case it is all the more reason to consider who he is. God invites angry people to come and to be surprised. Surprise number one is that Jesus has shared in our sufferings. You know, if you invented a religious system, it's unlikely that you would imagine a God who became like the people he created. But God did even more. He became like his creatures and willingly suffered a horrible death so that they could be spared. Even the men and women who studied Scripture didn't anticipate that God would come this close to them. They never guessed that the Messiah, God himself, would suffer in the way that he did. 
because they believed the lie that God was disconnected from them. You see, if you think that God is very far away and he's very indifferent, here is the surprising revelation. From the foundations of the world, God knew your sufferings, and he declared that he himself would take human form and would participate in them, which means that we could too share in his glory. Now, this is not a God that is distant. This is not a God that is indifferent. This is a God that is connected personally with us. Now, there's one chapter in Scripture, Mark chapter 14, that is a fascinating chapter in that it chronicles only just one day of the life of Jesus, just one day. And it reveals to us the extent to which Jesus shared in our sufferings. Let me give you these things that Jesus experienced one day in Mark chapter 14 while he's here on this earth. First of all, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for a sly way to arrest him and kill him. So Jesus is there with the chief priests and the scribes, and they're looking on this day to arrest him and kill him. Secondly, on the same day, Judas agreed to betray Jesus for a fee, 30 pieces of silver. On the same day, Jesus predicted that one of his followers would deny him, deny having any knowledge of him. On the same day, Jesus predicted that his other followers would all abandon him. On this same day, he was arrested. On this same day, people spat on him. On this same day, Mark chapter 14, same day, he was struck with fists and beaten to the point where he could have died from the lashings alone. And this was before he was shamed, before he was crucified. That's why Isaiah could say Jesus was going to be called a man of sorrows. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was despised. He was rejected to the point where people would turn away to avoid seeing his face. You know these things about Jesus, but now you also know that his sufferings were what we went through, but to a much greater degree. You see, sufferers should be able to recognize other sufferers. As a sufferer, you should recognize Jesus' suffering. If I said to you, I've had a sinus headache this week, many of you could respond, well, well, yes, the, the pollen has been terrible. I've had a sinus headache and itchy eyes and a nagging cough. If I were to say to you, I've had COVID, certainly you could respond and say, yes, I understand. I've had COVID too, and we could share in some of the similar things that we experienced, the, the, the cough and the, and the fever and, and the loss of taste and the loss of smell. You see, Jesus identified with everything that we go through. Have you ever noticed that sometimes in the presence of someone who is suffering, uh, their suffering seems greater than our own? All of a sudden, our suffering seems lighter, less intense. When you understand what Jesus went through, I hope that it will allow you to understand that your sufferings are not nearly as bad as you thought they were. You see, the cross says that life will not be easy. If Jesus serves, we will serve. If Jesus suffers, we too will experience suffering. Jesus said no servant is greater than his master. Yet these things are not always the way they appear. Suffering is a part of the path 
that leads to glory and to beauty. David the psalmist said this in Psalm 126, He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. You see, suffering has a purpose. It is changing us so that we look more and more like Jesus himself. Surprise number one is the fact that God suffers with us and he understands exactly what we're going through. Surprise number two is that God is good and he is generous. You know, it's hard to argue when we are reminded that Jesus shared in our sufferings and has compassion for those who suffer. It is easier to protest, right? However, when we hear the proposition that God is both good and generous, if he takes your suffering away, you are persuaded. If not, you remain a doubter. But I want you to know something that you probably already know. Jesus first suffered, and Jesus was dearly loved as the only Son of God. When we suffer what seems like endless pain, it is hard to believe that God loves us, but Jesus' suffering proves that it can be true. That doesn't mean that we always understand what is going on behind the scenes, but it is true nonetheless. Somehow, temporary suffering and love go together. You know, there's something else that I think we must look at as we look at this lie that God is, is distanced from us, this, this myth that God is distanced from us. And we find in Romans 8.32, this penetrating verse. It says that God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for all of us. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This is a reminder that the cross is the only evidence that can fully persuade you that God is, at all times, good and generous. You see, there is no arguing with somebody who is willing to make this ultimate sacrifice. If somebody is willing to give his only child for you, you can't not doubt that person's love. When the memory of such a costly sacrifice becomes distance, life's frustrations will tempt us to doubt. All we need is a quick reminder. Our guard says, if I have sacrificed my son for you, do you really think I'm going to be stingy and withhold my love for you? When children don't get what they want, when they want it, they have a hard time believing that their parents truly love them. After all, what could be better than satisfying all my wants? But parents know about a more sophisticated love. They know that catering to their children's wishes, their selfish wishes, is not always in the child's best interest. Sometimes they need to eat broccoli. Sometimes it's best that they go to bed early. Even though their friends are still outside playing, sometimes it's best to persuade your children of your love at these times. All you do is remind them that you love them. You see, God is good and He's gracious. He's not stingy. God commands His people not to covet because it is a form of denying His generosity. It's wanting something that somebody else has and not being grateful for what God has given you. You see, God's not trying to hold out on you. God's not trying to whip you into shape. God wants you to understand that you have your mouth open wide and he will fill it. So lie number one or myth number one is that God is disconnected from me. 
Line number two is that self-determination will bring about deliverance. Let's look at what Zephaniah 2.15 says. This is the carefree city that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am, and there is none beside me. What a ruin has become. A leer for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. You see, if it's to be, many people believe, it's going to be because of me. That is kind of the audience that Zephaniah is facing. They felt like they had safety, but God had nothing to do with their safety. In Zephaniah 2.3, Zephaniah cries out to them to seek the Lord. All you humbled of the land, you who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. You see, they felt like they were safe and secure because of their own strength. They did not realize that their safety came from the Lord. You know, the most disturbing fact of this season that we're living in as a nation is that as I look at our political leaders, as I look at those who are leading our nation, it seems like none of them are asking us to turn back to God. They're all asking us to depend upon them to get us out of the mess that we're in, whether it be dealing with COVID or, or dealing with the morality or immorality that we face as a nation or dealing with financial crisis. It seems like we have become a nation that is in government we trust instead of in God we trust. Zephaniah was facing the same thing. Zephaniah's people felt like that God had nothing to do with even the disasters that they were facing. In Zephaniah 2, 10 and 11, it says, this is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and for mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the land. The nations on every shore will worship him, everyone in his own land. You see, lie number one was that God is disconnected. He's not caring about us, but Jesus suffered and connected with us. Lie number two is that we are to be self-determined, and that will bring about our deliverance. But we discovered that disasters can come no matter how self-determined you may be. The third lie that they were believing is that we are completely in control of our future, of our destiny. As we get into Zephaniah chapter number three, Zephaniah cries out a woe to his people, and he says to them, woe to the city of oppressors rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Zephaniah was crying out to his people and saying, would you please come back to God? Come back to a relationship with him. But they were determined to have control over their destiny. As we look at Zephaniah chapter 3, we see that Israel's hope is gone. It says in verse number 5, The Lord without within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice, and every new day he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. You want know, a nation gets to a point where it knows no shame and is turning his back on God. Israel's hope was gone. Her righteousness was gone. As you think about your life, 
Maybe you're feeling like, my hope is gone. There is hope even in the book of Zephaniah. In verse number 15 of chapter number 3, it says that the Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned your back to your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. You see, when we look at the book of Zephaniah, it ends with hope. Zephaniah is talking about the Lord's wrath. It is a wrath that is going to destroy the nations. But as we look at the purity that God offers us, He offers us that purity when we rightly worship Him. In Genesis chapter 12, we are reminded that God blesses those who blesses the nation of Israel. And God curses those who curse the nation of Israel. I want you to know the Lord is mighty to save. The Lord your God is with you. He is a God that we should take delight in. Zephaniah ends with a song. And here are the words of the song that Zephaniah sings. In Zephaniah 3.17, he says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Don't you love the fact that God sings a song over us? God sings a song of blessing over us. He takes great delight in us when we turn back to Him. So, Lord, we conclude this broadcast with a prayer of thanksgiving to You. Thank You, Lord, for being mighty to save. Thank You for quieting us with Your love. Thank You for singing over us the songs of praise that You sing over us. We end this day thanking You, praising God, from whom all blessings flow. Thank you so much for joining this broadcast. God bless you. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3220 South Battlefield Boulevard, Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We would love for you to join us. For more information, you go to our website at www.hrcc7.org. No matter what you're going through, remember, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.